Welcome to Stealing from Wizards Volume 1, Pickpocketing, by R.A. Consul, read by the author. Chapter 22, The Blue Bowler Evelyn did not appear in class the next day, or the next. Rumor was that she had been knocked into some potions by Durgar's spell and was covered in fur. Kuro knew the truth, but kept it to himself. He smiled inwardly, remembering the large mustache and goatee that he had painted on her face, and how Marie had turned her hair and new beard bright green before leaving her at the infirmary. It was an image that would keep him grinning in the darkest times. Arthur had become much more relaxed. Though still quiet, shy, and awkward, he smiled more openly and laughed more often. He had also become vastly better at magic since he no longer had to concentrate on staying the same shape. Not everyone was as comfortable with Arthur as the lodgers. Many distrusted changelings and would cross the hallway or the classroom to avoid him. Others, Evelyn included, made cruel remarks, jeers, and implied threats. Arthur pretended that it didn't bother him, but he avoided going anywhere without the protection of a couple of friends. A side effect of not trying to stay the same shape meant that he rarely did. He would change based on his mood, and often started to look like the people he was listening to if they talked for too long. That meant he frequently took on the appearance of Charlie or his teachers. An hour of listening to Mrs. Lovelace talk about geometric formulas had him looking like a cubist rendition of the teacher. United with his friends, the final months of school flew by for Kuro. All too soon, that ease and comfort was replaced with the horror of final reports and the looming threat of exams. While he had improved a lot since he'd arrived, he still struggled through every assignment. He felt almost good enough at reading, writing, and magic to start the year, not finish it. He sat in the library with his friends, attempting to work through Charlie's chatter, when their session was interrupted by a surprise visit from Sabine. Kuro had already seen her earlier in the month and believed everything to be arranged for summer. I'm very sorry, she said politely to the four of them. Could I borrow Kuro from you? I have some exciting news for him. She led him from the library and waited until well out of earshot of the other students before starting to explain. It looks as though you won't have to go to the orphanage after all, she said warmly. Kuro couldn't understand why that was good news. But I want to go to the orphanage. Meredith says it's nice there, he pleaded. Oh, that is sweet, Sabine said consolingly. I'm sure that you could visit if you want to. But we found a better place. We found your family. Kuro was so surprised that he tripped over his feet and nearly fell flat on his face. He didn't have any family. Phineas had been very clear about that. He was an experiment. Phineas had created him from raw materials. Had he lied? Was Sabine mistaken? Did Kuro actually have a real family? Sabine led Kuro to the room where they normally met. She opened the door and gave Kuro a little nudge to walk inside. A man was in the chair where Sabine normally sat. He was well-dressed in a crisp gray business suit and wore a bright blue bowler hat. He sat with the posture of a very proud man, straight-backed, one leg crossed casually over the other, exposing a well-polished shoe. His face was hard to read. He was clean-shaven and looked a bit weathered. His lips were spread in a broad, warm smile, but his eyes remained distant and judgmental. The man seemed strangely familiar, but Crow couldn't recall knowing anyone, or stealing from anyone, who wore such a bright blue hat. This is Mr. Jonathan Smith, said Sabine, your uncle. The man stood up. 
Thank you, Miss Elisa. His smile grew even wider as he surveyed Kuro. We had all thought you were lost in the accident with your parents, Albert. I've not seen you since you were a babe in arms. That's your name, Albert. I'm told they've been calling you Kuro. The voice was familiar. Crow knew it. He just couldn't place it. He'd heard it before, but it was like a dream he'd forgotten. Come here and let me look at you, the man said. Crow felt his legs moving beneath him automatically. The very thought of refusing to do what he was told made him weak. It was Phineas Hearn. It could only be him. He had to obey the voice of his master even if he didn't recognize it. Phineas was using a distracting draft and that ridiculous blue bowler to disguise himself. Crow looked closer at the man. He wasn't sure he would have recognized him even without magic. He looked healthy, strong, and self-assured. He smelled clean and his clothes were neatly pressed. He moved with confidence and precision. The only thing that was really the same as the Phineas Kuro knew was the eyes. They were still cold, calculating, and filled with loathing. How? Kuro started to say, but he was cut off. Don't say another word, said Phineas. We'll have plenty of time for questions later. Kuro's voice evaporated and his jaw clamped shut. Phineas seemed very pleased with that reaction. Go and get your things and hurry straight back, he said loudly. He leaned in closer and said, And any of my things you happen to have, do you understand? Crow nodded. His body walked itself to the dorm and started throwing his few possessions into his book bag. The few students studying in the lounge took no notice of him as he entered and left without a word. It was terribly unfair, Crow thought. He had finally felt at home, felt what freedom was like. Before he had come to Avalon, he'd never known what he was missing. Going back to Phineas would be a hundred times worse now. He wished that someone would notice him, that he'd run into a teacher, that they would see something was wrong, but the grounds were empty. Everyone was either in class or studying for exams. He walked back into the meeting room with his belongings loaded into his book bag and looked helplessly at Sabine, but she seemed oblivious. She smiled at him and patted his head. I'll be taking him to meet the rest of his family now, said Phineas. No need to worry. Follow me, Kuro. He led Kuro out of the meeting room, down the stairs, and out along the paths to the ferry dock. I've spent the last three months trying to find you, boy, Phineas complained once they were out of earshot of anyone. I expected you dead, and instead I find they've made you into a wizard. Phineas seemed disgusted by the idea. Where are my things? My notebook, my shell, do you have them? Tell me, where are they? Kuro's jaw finally unclenched. No, master, he said sullenly. I hid them in detritus. They were already hidden. Phineas snapped and raised his hand as though to hit Kuro. I feared they would be found if the hounds came back. Kuro shrunk back. Phineas looked around and lowered his hand. He was unwilling to risk being seen delivering a beating on the grounds of the school, though his anger was still palpable. They did return. They found my cane and used it to condemn me. It bore the history of the things it had done. Why didn't you hide that? He snapped viciously. You ordered me never to touch your cane, Crow sniveled. Phineas's expression softened to one of interest rather than rage. Following my orders even in my absence. Better than I expected. Much better. He was speaking to himself more than Kuro. They reached the empty docks and continued along the pier towards the edge of the Vale. 
Before they crossed through, they heard someone calling to them. Phineas whipped around and raised a new cane. Crew felt the electric charge building up on it to attack whoever approached. He turned, fearful of who might be unlucky enough to find them. Charlie was running as fast as she could down the pier after them. Wait, she yelled. You can't go. Run away, thought Crow as loudly as he could. Don't come. He'll kill you. Phineas did not reach for his cane, though. He relaxed and returned to his smiling false affectation. Tell me, is that a friend of yours, Kuro? He said pleasantly. Yes, said Kuro, unable to resist his master's order. I suppose they've taught you some magic here, haven't they? He patted Kuro on the shoulder paternally as Charlie ran closer. She was nearly at the gates. Charlie staggered to a stop a few feet from Kuro and Phineas, the veil shimmering next to them. They said... She gasped, trying to catch her breath. They said you were leaving. She gulped down some air. Leaving without saying goodbye. Not allowed. Why had somebody told her? Crow's heart was pounding in his chest. Maybe Phineas would let her go. Maybe he would want to keep himself secret. Phineas crouched down and whispered darkly to Kuro. Show me what they've taught you. Show me that you're loyal to me. Get rid of her. Kuro looked into Phineas's eyes. There was no question what Phineas meant, but his words had left room for Kuro to interpret. Kuro raised his hand. I'm sorry, he said to Charlie, who was completely bewildered by Kuro's actions. Vatir, he said sadly as he swept his hand forward and pointed towards Charlie. A stream of black ash flew out and hit her square in the chest. She dropped to the ground and lay motionless. Kuro walked over to her unmoving body and checked her pulse. Impressive. I don't know that one. You'll have to teach it to me commented Phineas, unmoved by the apparent murder he had just witnessed. You're finally achieving your purpose. How is she? It did not surprise Kuro that Phineas didn't know a spell that would make people laugh, or make people sad. Such things were beneath him. Kuro moved to check on Charlie. She was catatonic with grief. About as you'd expect, answered Kuro. Excellent. You never forget your first. Phineas smiled in approval. Get rid of the body. We don't want to be found out too soon. Crow dragged Charlie's limp body out through the veil at the end of the ferry dock. After passing through, he was immediately knee-deep in the surf and had to fight to keep Charlie's head above water. Hoping that the veil would obscure his actions enough from Phineas, he wrestled her up a distance onto dry land and in clear sight of Danny's bird-watching cameras. He just hoped that she was keeping an eye on them but he knew that Charlie would be trapped here, unable to move out in the Blandlands without her magic to help her. But that also meant she wouldn't come back up and risk Phineas realizing the ruse. Someone will find you here, Kuro said. I'm sorry. As soon as Kuro had returned through the veil, Phineas said, Come, we must be off before any alarm is raised. Tied up to the dock was a motorboat, which Phineas must have stolen from someone in the Blandlands. He dropped down into the boat, and with a few muttered words and a gesture, had it untie itself. Get in. Crow climbed into the boat, which Phineas guided out of the freshwater inlet, through the veil, and out into the salty bay. Once clear of the veil, Phineas started up the engine, and they roared across the choppy water. Crow watched the rocky, bird-covered island fade from view behind them, wondering if he would ever return. Thank you for listening to Stealing from Wizards. If you liked our show, please consider rating or reviewing on iTunes. 
If you want to support this podcast or just can't wait for the next chapter, the full book is available on Amazon, Kobo, and Indigo. Our theme music was written by Camille Saint-Saëns, transcribed by Franz Liszt, performed by Rebecca Verdun, and used with permission. This episode was produced by Jim Tigwell.